Tonight I'd like to speak about working with difficult and seductive energies in the context of one particular framework of understanding. And that framework of understanding was expressed very clearly by the 11th century Korean Zen master, Shanul. And he formulated his teachings with the phrase, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And it always appealed to me because I like the idea of starting with awakening and then emphasizing the gradual cultivation of that potential within us. So what does sudden awakening mean? In this context, it means the recognition and the experience of the mind's open, aware, empty nature. So Kensei Rinpoche, one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, he said, mind has no form, no color, and no substance. This is its empty aspect. Yet mind can know things and perceive an infinite variety of phenomena. This is its clear aspect. The inseparability of these two aspects, emptiness and clarity, is the primordial nature of mind. So the sudden awakening, moments of sudden awakening, is when we drop into the recognition of this nature of mind, this primordial nature of mind. It's both empty, empty of substance, and yet it has a knowing capacity. (laughs) So in this understanding, The nature of mind is not something we have to get. It's not something we don't have that we have to get or strive for or develop. Rather, it's something we need to recognize and come back to. So in the Chinese Chan tradition, there's an interesting dialogue between one of the great Chan masters and a seeker who came seeking the truth. So the seeker came to this Chan master and said, it's a question I think all of us could have, what am I supposed to do? And the master replies, why are you asking me? (laughs) I really like that. (laughs) So the seeker says, where else can I find what I'm looking for? Okay, so that's a reasonable rejoinder. Where else can I find what I'm looking for? And the master says, are you sure you lost it? (laughs) So that really opens the possibility of sudden awakening. It's really the recognition. It's not something we ever lost. So during the day, if you find yourself struggling to be aware, you know, and you're just in some kind of unease with regard to your practice, you might remind yourself, and I use this little mantra, it's already here, or already aware. Awareness is the nature of mind. So again, it's something we simply need to come back to. And it's a reminder that our practice is not about wanting or getting 
but about letting go into the mind of non-clinging, into the mind of non-grasping. Again, from Kensi Rinpoche, awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness. So how do we come to this sudden awakening? It's by letting go of clinging. And as many of you know, a favorite little saying of mine is, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. And so it's not like we have to wait for some new experience not to cling to. We might as well not cling now to whatever is arising. Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. So it's simple. It's not complicated. Non-clinging to anything is the bottom line reference point of our practice. And all the practices that we do, all the methods we might be using, all are in the service of this end. So the question arises, if the nature of mind is, or is awareness, this is the very nature of mind, and in that respect, the awakened state is already here, then what does it mean to speak of gradual cultivation? So Suzuki Roshi expressed it in a very pithy way. He said, everything is perfect, but there is a lot of room for improvement. And that captures sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Everything is perfect, and there's a lot of room for improvement. So it's important to understand that when we speak of sudden awakening, it doesn't mean that we're fully enlightened, that we're fully realized. We may have recognized to some extent the aware, empty nature of the mind. But as Shanul says, <clears throat> although we have awakened to original nature, beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. <clears throat> Hindrances are formidable and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? Yeah, I love this understanding. It, it's like an understanding of the union of <clears throat> the ultimate level of emptiness and the relative level of skillful means and method of gradual cultivation. But then Chanel goes on to say something else which is really important <clears throat> in our understanding of how we continue our practice. Even though there may have been only moments or even many moments of this recognition of sudden awakening where we really do experience this open, aware, empty nature of mind. So even though we've experienced it, still the habitual energies, the habitual patterns of the hindrances are formidable. Still, something has happened, something important has happened in those moments of recognition. 
And so Shanul goes on, although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind's nature is originally pure. So this is important. He's reminding us that although moments of awakening are not complete, they still transform the way we do the practice. So as we continue with our gradual cultivation of the awakened state, and using the various skillful means and methods that we do, we can practice from the understanding, from the realization, that the difficulties we face, the various hindrances that arise, the different defilements of mind, are themselves essentially empty of self. The hindrances, the defilements, all the afflictive emotions, even though they continue to arise and we need to work with them, to learn how to work with them, we do it with the understanding that they themselves are insubstantial or selfless. And just this understanding brings about a certain level of stability and confidence to the mind. There's one description of the Buddha's enlightenment under the tree, which I really love. He's sitting under the the Bodhi tree, the night of his enlightenment, sitting with that firm resolve not to get up from his seat until he achieved full realization. And as the night progressed, all the forces of Mara, the embodiment of illusion, delusion, appeared in his mind. And as it said, there were the terrifying visions, you know, of aggression and violence and seductive visions of heavenly pleasures. But then there's one line, (coughs) which is just incredibly inspiring to me in my practice, where it says, in the face of all these visions and things arising, it said, and the mind of the great being was not moved. And it's just, you know, one can just, picture sitting on that diamond throne of awakening and everything happened, huge forces appearing and challenging and and the Bodhisattva just sitting there and the mind of the great being was not moved. So can we practice in that way? This really can be the reference point for how we work with and face the different difficulties and hindrances and defilements that arise in our own minds. In whatever posture we're in, in whatever activity we're engaged in, what has the power to move our minds? You know, in what way are our minds seduced? And we can explore this on many levels. You know, we get lost often in strong emotions, sometimes in background moods, or just in passing thoughts, or all the stories, the proliferation of stories. Or we get lost or seduced by identification with consciousness itself. So the Buddha highlighted 
a number of these particularly seductive states. And it's essential that we learn to recognize these deeply habituated patterns and to explore not only their nature, but also to investigate what it is exactly that makes them so alluring. Why is it that we get caught up in them again and again? When we take an interest in them in this way, what is their nature? What is their allure? We begin to experience them not so much as a personal problem, you know, but as the very place in our practice and in our lives to explore and understand the interplay between ignorance and awareness, between suffering and freedom. So with this attitude, with this attitude of interest and investigation of these basic themes of our lives, when does ignorance hold sway? When are we in the field of sudden awakening? When is there suffering? How can I be free of suffering? These are the basic questions of our lives. So when we understand and work with the hindrances or the defilements, the afflictive emotions in this way, <clears throat> we actually become glad to see them because we'd rather see them and understand them than not see them. And that's a very different attitude towards them than we usually have. So can we practice with them in a way that, like the great being, our mind is not moved? So tonight I'll speak just a little bit about two of these states, although the process really applies to all the kalesas, all the defilements. But tonight I'll talk particularly about doubt and aversion. And there are a couple of steps in the process of our investigation. And the first step is that of clear recognition. We need to learn how to recognize the telltale signs of these mind states of doubt and aversion. Because often they come masquerading as something skillful as something good, as something worthwhile, and we get fooled by their disguise. So it's not always easy to recognize them when they arise because, because of their disguise. So first to clarify a little bit the word doubt, the term doubt, because it can refer to two quite different states. You know, one helpful, one not so helpful. Helpful doubt is simply the attitude of inquiry, of investigation. You know, what is this? What's happening? It's the opposite of dogmatic belief. So it's not a question simply of believing everything we hear or read or what somebody says. So that kind of doubt healthy doubt, questioning doubt, is actually good. It's, it's a quality of inquiry. The unskillful aspect, we might use the term skeptical doubt. 
Well, this is a state of uncertainty and indecision. And it's just the opposite of confidence. When we have this kind of skeptical doubt, indecision, perplexity, then there's no confidence in what we're doing. You know, it's some, the example given is like being at a crossroads and not knowing which way to go. The mind simply going back and forth between alternatives and not going anywhere. Of all the hindrances the Buddha talked of, he said that this hindrance of doubt is the most dangerous. It's the most obstructive to our path because it brings our practice and sometimes it brings our lives to a standstill. When doubt is proliferating in the mind, this indecision, this perplexity, It doesn't even give us the opportunity to take a wrong turn and to learn from our mistakes. We're simply frozen in the indecision, always checking ourselves. It's like we're always undermining ourselves. The author Jan Martel, who wrote The Life of Pi, had a wonderful description of doubt. He said, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. It doesn't get us any place when doubt is strong in the mind. Most of us here probably have quite a strong confidence in the Buddha's teachings. So I don't think there's necessarily much doubt about that among us. It's it's really why we're here. But still, doubt can arise in some very particular forms in our meditation practice. And as we pay attention, we can begin to learn to recognize the patterns that seduce us again and again. So for all of us, at different times, difficulties will arise in the practice. That's just part of the path for everyone. But these difficulties, if not understood correctly, can lead to doubting thoughts about whatever method we happen to be using. What am I doing here? What does sitting here, feeling my breath, have to do with anything? What does it have to do with all the suffering in the world? Or we might start comparing practices. You know, when we're, when we're struggling with whatever difficulties are arising, so then the doubting, for, oh, maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting, you know, or visualization, or Sufi dancing or something. Or we can even be comparing, the doubting mind can be comparing methods within one tradition. Should I do metta or should I do vipassana? Oh, I'm doing vipassana, the difficulties. Ah, I think I'll do metta. I'm doing metta, it's pretty dry. Maybe I'll switch back to vipassana. And we're just going back and forth. This is the doubting mind. Should we feel the breath at the nose or the abdomen? There were dharma wars in Burma over that one. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's sort of like out of Gulliver's Travels. Should I be doing a directed awareness or should I be doing choiceless awareness? Should I be making a strong effort or should I be making no effort? I mean, the questions, the doubting mind about how we're practicing uh, at times can get very strong. And when we're lost in that doubt, we're not doing anything. We're just, we're just at a standstill. The questions themselves are fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with these questions arising. But when we get caught up in an endless deliberation, as can happen at different times, when we're just going back and forth in our mind, we need to recognize this as doubt. That we've stopped at a crossroads, lost in indecision, and not going anyplace at all. But even more ingrained and probably more powerful than doubts about our practice is the pattern of self-doubt. You know, this is doubting our ability to practice. And again, it arises often when we're facing difficulties. You know, when things are going smoothly and rolling along and there's good concentration, self-doubt may not arise so much. But then we're faced with the kalesas, we're faced with the hindrances, and these doubts arise. You know, am I doing it right? I can't do it. It's too hard. It's not the right time. There are too many other things going on in my life. You know, the, these self-doubts can take so many forms in our minds, and when the pattern of self-doubt is strong, it's not only a hindrance in meditation, it can also become a debilitating force in our lives. Because self-doubt, doubt are about our ability to do what we're doing, to do what we set out to do, is always undermining us. It undermines our efforts. We're always holding back. There's an interesting phrase in English when we say that we or someone is plagued by doubt. That's an interesting idiom, plagued by doubt. Because when doubt is in the mind, it is like a plague. Now, instead of making the experiment, whether in meditation or anything else, and engaging fully in the experience through all the ups and downs, through all the difficulties, so that we see for ourselves whether that endeavor is skillful and beneficial or not. When we're plagued by doubt, the plague is one of endless speculation. And then the doubt becomes self-fulfilling. Because simply being lost in the doubting mind really is useless. And nothing is accomplished. It doesn't allow us to investigate for ourselves. And if, you have, if you've had recent doubt attacks of any kind, you know or you'll remember why it is likened to a thorn in the mind. Doubt is likened to a thorn that keeps jab jabbing. And so when doubt is there, and especially this self-doubt, we feel irritable and we feel discouraged and we feel dissatisfied.
So sometimes self-doubt has some very deep roots. And a not uncommon one is kind of a deeply ingrained feeling of unworthiness. If that's our particular schema, you know, if that's if that's our pattern, where feelings of unworthiness arise frequently, then it will very easily manifest as doubt, as self-doubt, doubt about our ability to practice. You know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama had such powerful words to say about this feeling. Someone asked him the question. I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? And the Dalai Lama gave a very forceful answer. He said, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling I am of no value is wrong, absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So it's just so striking, he's just saying, He's not denying that the feeling arises, because it does arise out of conditioning, so we have to acknowledge that and be with it, but that the content of the feeling is wrong. The truth value, I'm of no value, is wrong. Why? Because the very nature of mind is awareness. It's not that some people have that nature and others don't. And when we drop back into that recognition, then we're not trapped or caught or seduced by this feeling of unworthiness, and the power of self-doubt begins to diminish. The Buddha highlighted the importance of recognizing and working with doubt and all the other hindrances and defilements He said, when we attend to them carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation, and lead away from Nibbana. So it's not a trifling matter. You know, when these hindrances arise in our practice, and they will, they they do come up for everyone at different times. They should not be treated lightly because when we attend to them carelessly, they are detrimental to wisdom. They tend to vexation and lead away from Nibbana. So given this, we might wonder why why would we ever be caught up in these unskillful states? I mean, it's not as if the states leading to vexation. Oh, good. Let me, let me go with that one. You know, what, what is their allure that we get seduced by them again and again? If we recognize doubt, or any of the others, as I say, the process is the same. If we recognize doubt when it arises and have an attitude of interest and inquiry, then the second step in the process of working with it is precisely to understand its allure. How is it that it seduces us? 
And we see that the great seduction of doubt is that it arises in the mind masquerading as wisdom. So that's how it deceives us. We hear this very wise sounding voice in our mind and it sounds so reasonable and so valid and so true. What's the point of doing this? You know, maybe some other time. Yes. Other practices are so much quicker. You know, if only I were doing a different practice, I'd be enlightened by now. I'm just not able to do this. Yeah, and you can just hear that little seductive voice in our minds that sound so reasonable to us. But if we can see through the disguise, this is not the voice of wisdom. This is not the voice of truth. If we can see them, see through the disguise, and see, yes, this is just a doubting thought. That's what's happening. It's just another passing thought. Then we don't give it any power. And then in the midst of the doubting thought itself, there can be a sudden awakening to to the thought's empty, transparent nature. So when we attend with care rather than carelessly, when we bring the interest, when we bring the investigation and recognize it for what it is, right in the midst of that doubting thought, there can be a sudden awakening to the empty nature of all phenomena. Although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind's nature originally pure. So it's not a problem that these states arise. They will arise. But we need to have the interest, the energy, the willingness to attend carefully, to see them carefully, because they're very seductive. And if we don't have that interest and and willingness, then we get lost in them again and again. So another mind state that powerfully conditions our minds, our meditation, our life experience is the mind state of aversion. You know, and we experience this in so many different ways. We experience it as anger, as hatred, as annoyance, as irritation, as fear, as ill will, as grief, as the endless judging mind. There are so many forms that aversion takes. And all of these mind states are conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. It's very rare that we feel aversion to what's pleasant. It's mostly habituated reactions to what is unpleasant. So as with doubt, we need to learn to recognize just the signs, the first signs when any of these forms of aversion uh, arise, to investigate their nature and to look at the source of their hold on our mind. Why do we become so identified with aversion? 
it arises in some pretty predictable ways. Very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. Now, when these unpleasant sensations arise, unless we're very mindful in the moment of their arising, we can feel the energetic contraction. You know, we can feel the frustration in the mind, the impatience. When painful sensations arise, unpleasant sensations, for the most part, we just don't like them. We want them to go away. But we can also turn that around and we can use the contraction that we feel or the frustration that we feel as a signal. Instead of it being a problem, it actually can become a signal to us that aversion has arisen. So in that way, it can be a wake-up call. It can be a mindfulness bell. So side eye with Tejaniya. You just expressed the practice of working with unpleasant feelings so simply and clearly. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is, <laughs> is this the way of the Dharma? <laughs> I love that because it's so true. You only want pleasant experience. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. It's like our conditioning goes so deep. We want what's pleasant. We want to avoid what's unpleasant. As he says, is this fair? Is this the way of the Dharma? It's not. And so we have to practice when... There's physical discomfort, physical pain. It's just part of having a body. It's it's an inevitable part of having a body. It is the nature of things. So we need to learn how to be mindful of that so that we're not triggered automatically into a reaction of aversion. Different forms of aversion can also arise when we think about painful or unpleasant past situations. You know, there's a thought or an image of someone or of, of a, some event, and we get angry or irritated or fearful just thinking about it. You know, I'm sure you've had that happen many times. You're sitting here quite peacefully in this nice forest refuge, And then some memory arises in the mind of somebody who did you wrong, you know, and and the thought arises, and before we know it, we're feeling agitated or annoyed or angry or fearful, whatever it may be. But what's really going on? In that moment, what's happening is that we're getting angry at a thought. Munindra had this wonderful line, which he said all the time, and it's kind of embedded itself in my consciousness. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. So you could substitute anything for mother. The thought of something is not the thing. It's just a thought. But if we're not very mindful of that, the content of the thought 
seduces us. We get pulled right into the story. And once we're lost in the content, in the story, it can trigger all of these emotions. But what's even more peculiar than getting angry at a thought about something that happened in the past is getting angry at some imagined event in the future, something that hasn't even happened. But we're sitting here and we imagine some meeting with somebody or some whatever. We sit here, we're imagining this, and then we get angry or upset or whatever it may be. This is about something that hasn't even happened. You're probably familiar with Mark Twain's great line, some of the worst things in my life never happened. And this is how we live. We can get impatient or frustrated or annoyed with situations on retreat, even in as pleasing circumstances as this place is. It would be hard to find a place that has less possibility for irritation about the situation to arise, and yet it doesn't matter because it's really not about that. You know, you're sitting here and you're really, everything's quiet and peaceful, and then the squeaking of somebody coming into the hall, the noise of the squeaking floor, you know, why can't they walk more quietly, you know, or there's some food you don't like, you know, and, and you feel compelled to write a note to the kitchen, you know, why do you serve that? I mean, the classic, the, the absolute yogi mind classic didn't happen here. But at one retreat, this is years ago, the managers got this note from a yogi disturbed by the airplanes flying overhead, and would they please write to the airlines so they can reroute the planes. <laughs> In the space of what we're all familiar with, you know, what we call yogi mind, <laughs> which happens. I mean, this is, this is a phenomena. Yogi mind happens. And what it is, it's just our aversions become so magnified and we begin to believe that the aversion really does have to do with the particular object or situation, rather than just with our own reactive mind. You know? And so we need to see this. We need to, when we're feeling discouraged you know, in our practice, or grumpy, or you know, things are difficult, the smallest thing can prompt aversion in the mind. And then we you know, project that onto other yogis. And most of you are familiar, I know, with the Vipassana romance, but there's also the Vipassana vendetta, you know, where there's one yogi who you just can't stand. You don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they dress, you don't like the way they eat, you know, whatever. What's going on? It's not the poor yogi. <laughs> it's just our own minds projecting the aversion, pro- projecting the irritation.
know, sometimes aversion arises when we personalize something that's completely impersonal. Have you ever had the experience of going into the, you know, to the airport in that dreaded moment when you look up on the board and you see your flight is canceled or delayed for hours? Or, and some form of the feeling arises, how can they do this to me? You know, it's as if it has anything to do with us. You know, but we're just personalizing the lack of our ability to be with frustration. There's a feeling that arises. It is frustrating. You know, plans have to be changed, whatever. So it's a frustrating situation. But to the degree that we cannot tolerate frustration, so then it gets projected out into aversion. There's one Tibetan teaching that says, if you don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. And that again comes back to the understanding of sudden awakening, where all of these states will arise, whether it's the different forms of doubt or the different forms of aversion. They're going to arise. But if we don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. And so we're simply abiding in that open, empty, aware place of mind, and these things come and go, and they don't hook us, they don't seduce us. But sometimes, even when we're mindful of the aversion, you know, maybe we are aware that it's arisen, We're mindful of it, but it doesn't dissolve. It doesn't seem to liberate itself. But then we can use it as a signal to turn our minds back to being mindful of the unpleasantness that's arising. Because it's simply because we're not accepting of the unpleasantness that triggers or conditions aversion or anger or irritation or frustration to arise. And so a big part of our practice, and this goes against probably lifetimes of conditioning, in the face of unpleasantness, instead of trying to keep it out, which is the deep pattern of our conditioning, keep it out, avoid it, defend ourselves, protect ourselves from it. But all of that is what feeds aversion. So what we have to do is to train ourselves, and it takes practice. This is the gradual cultivation. We need to practice being willing to open to what is unpleasant. It's okay to feel unpleasantness. That's a huge step. You know, and we've all had experiences of that already. You probably can think back to your 
very early stages of meditation practice where even a little physical pain, you know, was intolerable. And I had to shift position or get up. But, you know, after years of practice and of experience, we actually do learn, okay, it's okay. I can, I can be with this. It's okay to feel it. And so we do have some experience of being with unpleasantness in a mindful way. We just need to strengthen that and to extend it to all the areas of our experience. So Ajahn Chah tells a story very illustrative of this. So it was at a time when he had gone on retreat himself to, I guess he had a little kuti um, in the forest, but it was right outside of a village in rural Thailand. And as very often happens in Asia, you know, the villages were having some kind of festival or party one night, and often there were these loudspeakers, you know, blaring music. So Ajahn Chah was trying to meditate, and these speakers are blaring, and he was getting very irritated and annoyed. I mean, here he is, the great teacher. Shouldn't they have more respect for the fact of his practice? So then he reflected, and this is, this is from a book by uh, Ajahn Amaro about uh, Ajahn Chah. So Ajahn Chah reflected, well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. (laughs) I mean, I could relate so well to this because all the years of practicing in Asia, so many times, just the most loud, abrasive, you know, metal on metal and clanging and all day long and and having to work with the irritation and the annoyance and the, but it comes down just to what Ajahn Chah said. If we don't annoy the sound, the sound is not going to annoy us. It's just sound. So it's a question of learning to let things in rather than the frustrating attempt of trying to keep things out. Sometimes, even as we practice, both in meditation and in our lives, in all the ways that I've mentioned, Sometimes we will still get caught up in powerful emotions. You know, the stories become so compelling. It's important to remember that there are times when these very strong emotions are actually telling us something important. They may be conveying information about a situation. We might feel, for example, we might feel anger at injustice. We might feel anger or upset in a situation where we feel 
for whatever reason, there's a need to establish some strong boundaries where people are doing something harmful. So the challenge in these situations is can we understand the message of the emotion? Can we understand the information that it is conveying without drowning in it, without becoming totally identified with it, without being overwhelmed? In this way, we can take appropriate action and not be acting out out of reactivity, acting out in unskillful ways. So here it's helpful to practice with strong emotions or strong hindrances to check our attitude, the attitude in the mind about them because we may recognize it, we may understand its allure, see its seductive power, but we may also be relating to it in a way that is feeding it. You know, sometimes we're feeding things, particularly feelings of aversion or anger, with the underlying feeling of self-righteousness. Well, I'm right. Look at what these people are doing. I should feel the way I'm feeling. And that's just a rationale for holding on to suffering, for getting seduced by the anger. Or there may be feelings of aversion towards the aversion. We don't like the fact that it's arisen, or we judge ourselves for having it. Here we're trying to get rid of aversion through aversion. Not a very helpful strategy. Whatever the particular emotion might be, the hindrance, the defilement, we can check the attitude in our mind about it and then practice opening to it, just as Ajahn Chah opened to the sound. When we recognize that a hindrance is there, doubt or aversion or fear or whatever it is, when these arise, we can practice opening to it rather than pushing it away. One of the... uh, best examples of this and the possibility of transforming difficulty into freedom is a poem which probably many of you have heard, but it's one of my favorites. It's by Billy Collins. It's called Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in My House. This actually has relevance to our practice. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, 
his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. That endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> Every difficulty we face is just the barking dog solo. And, you know, can we just take it in? It's just what's arising. It's just what's appearing. You know? When we're not mindful, all of these afflictive emotions obscure the natural wisdom of the mind. And when we are mindful, allowing all of these mind states just to appear, to change, to disappear in the open space of awareness, the open space of mind, then the hindrances themselves become a vital part of our practice. Let's sit for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.